All right, if you can turn to Mark chapter 4. We're going to do the last in a series of parables. We've only got a couple of verses here today. We'll let musicians get where they need to be. Okay. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. We'll stop there. Uh, We've uh, previously addressed 33 through 35, so um, let's pray. Father, uh, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. Uh, Thank you for this enduring and reliable word, and as we examine it this morning, let us not forget that by it you examine us as well. Uh, Grant the Spirit to illuminate the Word so that we might understand it, believe it, and live in accordance uh, with your will and purposes found here. In the name of the living Word who took on flesh, Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Uh, There there was once a movie done by some British comedians, And uh, early on in the movie, there's a scene where Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, the main character is way in the back. You know, you can barely hear the words of Jesus. And of course, he's surrounded uh, by all of these people who keep talking, as you might imagine. And uh, one of the things that happens in, in the midst of Uh, all of the discussion that's going back and forth, uh, they said, what did Jesus say, or what did he say? And some guy from a little farther up says, he said, blessed are the cheesemakers. To which the rich woman goes, what's so special about them? To which her uh, rather uh, distinguished-looking husband says, he's not meant to be taken literally. It refers to all makers of dairy products. They had trouble understanding what Jesus was saying. Part of it was the sheer distance from what Jesus, uh, from where Jesus was speaking, but also was the human folly that is so prevalent to try and figure out Jesus and figure out his word on our own. I want you to keep that in mind. Because as we look at this particular parable, what we're going to find is that there's some uh, pretty divergent interpretations of this parable, and uh, it's not just by people that we think are crazy. So, um, this is one of those parables that's, in some ways, difficult for us to understand. Uh, So, you know, how can we explain the kingdom of God to people and uh, you know, Jesus has been telling this series of, of parables, most of which have to do with the growth of seeds um, in the ground. Um, 
Mark here is recording the last one, and if we go to the parallel passages like Mark, uh, sorry, like uh, Matthew 13, we're going to see that there are other parables in addition to the ones that we've looked at. Uh, but the kingdom, Jesus kind of has this question as he speaks to the people. Uh, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, and by what parable explain it? And I, I use that term explain to really kind of bring out the nuance of the word that Jesus uses. He's trying to explain the kingdom of God to ordinary people. And again, as we've talked about parables, we recognize that the way Jesus speaks both reveals and conceals elements of what he's trying to say. And so uh, Jesus wants to explain the kingdom precisely because the kingdom of God is unlike any other kingdom that these people have had experience with. And so Jesus begins with this parable that it is like a grain of mustard seed. Now, when you think of a kingdom, do you think of seeds? Is that the first thing that comes to mind, that a kingdom is like a seed? And in this case, not just any seed, but a grain of mustard seed. That's not where my mind goes when I think of kingdoms. And we've take, I've taken advantage of these opportunities in the last few weeks to speak a little bit about how the kingdom of God is different from other kingdoms. But we see... Something of a head-scratcher here, yet again, as Jesus brings up the grain of mustard seed. If we go back to that movie, uh, the uh, foolishness of the people hadn't, hadn't finished, because again, there's dialogue that's going off on the side. Rabbit trails, you might say, uh, as we are the church of rabbit trails, as we discussed this morning. And um, some bent-over man says, he said, blessed is the Greek... Did anyone get his name? Again, the misunderstanding of what's going on. And it's very easy for us to misunderstand what Jesus is getting at in this particular parable about a grain of mustard seeds. Mustard seeds, or mustard plants, rather, are interesting. I mean, they're important. They, uh, they, they grow and they, provi- <coughs> they provide spices, but also spices that can be used for medicinal purposes. And so a lot of people would have mustard bushes as a part of their garden, but it was dangerous to have a mustard plant as part of your garden because they are invasive. They drop their tiny little seeds, and next thing you know, you have a whole bunch of these plants growing up and taking over your garden. It's sort of like the Rosa Ragusa that I had to deal with uh, up in upstate New York this summer, uh, Amy and I, on our work day, were out in the heat trying to remove this rather invasive plant that had taken over uh, my mother-in-law's garden. And so there's a sense in which mustard plants are dangerous. But, and here I think this is a positive because the kingdom of God is transformative and takes over. This is, in, this is in this way a, a very good thing. And it's something that I think Jesus is implying in what he's saying here. Rome, that great kingdom, 
that great empire that had conquered the world, had turned over the Greeks who thought that they were, you know, the, the bee's knees and they were everything. And uh, Rome overthrew the Greeks and their empire stretched all the way to the borders of India and had gone as far west as Gaul, what we now call Spain, and was going north, pressing into uh, what we now call Germany and the, you know, Hadrian's Wall and Britain, all of this stuff. It was an expansive sort of empire. Rome, that Roman Empire, was opposed to Christianity and continued to oppress it in various ways and persecute it at various times until Constantine. Constantine, who in 312 reportedly became a Christian himself, and then eventually made Christianity a legal religion, uh, and then made Christianity a preferred religion. And so the Roman Empire became increasingly, shall we say, Christianized. Well, about 100 years later, 410, we have the Visigoths come under Alaric, and they lay siege to Rome, and Rome falls, and all of the people of Rome who weren't Christians were blaming the fall of Rome upon the Christians, because it was the, the advent of Christianity which had, had weakened, in their minds, the Roman Empire. This, is, this might make sense in a few moments. Hang on here. Okay. Augustine, the bishop of Hippo, Hippa, in, uh, it is Hippo, it is not the, the legal thing uh, for, for health care, Hippo, <laughs> from 413 to 426, for 13 years he wrote his treatise, The City of God, which ended up being a Christian philosophy of history, which, in which he develops the idea of two kingdoms. Now, this is not something that was uh, just isolated to, to him, Augustine, but we see that both Luther and Calvin picked up ideas of, from Augustine this idea of two kingdoms and developed a sort of theology of two kingdoms. And uh, there's a newer version of this, which is not as good as what Luther and Calvin espoused, uh, in my opinion, anyway. But we see then... Kuiper in Holland taking up a version of this with his sphere sovereignty. But here's the basic idea. Everybody lives in two kingdoms. You live in an earthly kingdom, and you live in a spiritual kingdom. Now, in terms of earthly kingdoms, there are hundreds now, when we think about how many nations there are, okay? And, and everybody lives in a nation, you only live in one nation at a time. You might have dual citizenship uh, you know, in more than one country, but you only live in one place at one time, and you are a part of that earthly kingdom. And while you live within the boundaries of that earthly kingdom, you are bound by the laws of that earthly kingdom. You cannot say, I'm sorry, I don't have to obey your laws. I'm actually a citizen of this other country. Too bad. No. You're there. You can still end up in Turkish prison, you know, as we, as, uh, we hear about at, in movies in real life, like Brunson. Okay? If you live there, you can end up in prison there. If you're traveling through there, you can end up in prison there. We've all heard the, the news a couple years ago about the Marine who mistakenly traveled through Mexico with a shotgun and ended up in Mexican prison. Okay? 
Doesn't matter that he wasn't a citizen of Mexico. He was in the domain of Mexico, and he ended up in prison in Mexico. So, earthly kingdom. You all live in one, whether you want to or not. You also live in a spiritual kingdom. There's only two of those. There is the domain of darkness. Okay? All people are born into that kingdom. Okay? It's, it's related to Adam, but it's under the sovereignty of the prince of the power of the air, as we see in Ephesians chapter 2, the evil one. The, the people who have been rescued and, and put into the kingdom of God's son, the kingdom of God, okay? they're in a separate kingdom, a glorious kingdom, a spiritually positive kingdom, in a sense. Um, they're under the domain of God as opposed to the domain of Satan. Okay? You live in two kingdoms. You live in an earthly kingdom. You live in a spiritual kingdom. And as a result, you are subject to laws in both kingdoms, so to speak. As Christians, we recognize that there are some sins that are crimes and some sins that are not crimes. We recognize that that, uh, some crimes aren't sins as well. Let's think about this just for a moment. Until recently, adultery was a crime in most states. In fact, I found out not too long ago uh, that adultery is still a misdemeanor in good old Arizona. So think about that, folks. Okay. Sin that is also punishable, not by the church, but also by the state. But there are some sins that are not always punished by the state. You can lie all you want, unless you lie under oath. Now you've committed not simply a sin, but also a crime. Okay? And you can be punished. There are things that are crimes that are not necessarily sins. Our rule, our law books are filled with some of these, but let's, for a moment, just say moving violations. It's not necessarily, or, or speeding itself is not sinful. What would be sinful would be the disregard for the legitimate authority that imposed the speeding limit. So you notice the distinction there? You know, God's not going, oh my goodness, you went too fast, but you violated the law of the land. That's a different sort of story. So we live within these kingdoms, and these kingdoms have laws. We have responsibilities to both kingdoms. Okay? But we recognize, or should recognize from Scripture, that God's kingdom requires the ultimate, final allegiance. So we see in Acts chapter 4, Peter and and John had been warned not to preach in the name of Jesus, but they say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Peter and John said, we have to obey God first, and you don't have the right to tell us not to. That kingdom took precedence over the earthly kingdom. God's kingdom will always take precedence for Christians 
and should take precedence for Christians as opposed over the earthly kingdom. So when it comes to you, um, it can't be America first over the kingdom of God. It can be America first over Zimbabwe. It can be America first over China. It can be America first over any other, any other earthly kingdom. But what it cannot be is America first over Jesus Christ. We are called to live within the earthly kingdom precisely as Christians. Our, our, the reality that we live in this spiritual kingdom is meant to inf- influence everything we do in the earthly kingdom. They're not disconnected, as some people try to make them. But we should live, we should vote in accordance with what we believe God has told us in his word, about who we should be as people. We are to obey God rather than men when it is necessary. And so what we find as we kind of, uh, the outworking of this idea of, of two kingdoms is that when Christians do have social prominence, when they do have social power, their own country tends to share increasingly biblical morality. Not perfectly, okay? Uh, But we recognize a a lot of us can see a lot of ways in which uh, our nation, as as it has gotten increasingly distant from the gospel, has become increasingly immoral in a number of ways. But that's not to say that, oh, there was a golden age where America was perfect. Because it's always been sinful. Because it's always had sinners in it. But I'm saying generally, the, sort of a transformation of a culture because it spreads. Now, are you weary of moral decline? I want you to remember the mustard seed. And because you remember the mustard seed, I want you to pray, I want you to proclaim this message of Jesus to people so that they can move from the spiritual kingdom of the evil one to the kingdom of the Son. It's odd, I've, re- I've just finished uh, volume three of Newton's works, and at, at the end of that volume are a number of feast days, or fasting days, special sermons. And in, in this, it's, it's because of difficulties that Britain was experiencing. And, and Newton, in the course of these sermons, keeps going to, one, England's biblical heritage... Okay. And in one of these, he's contrasting it with France. Okay, Sorry, Lucette. Okay. He's talking about how much better they were than France. Okay. Um, but how they were forfeiting this great spiritual heritage by all of these national and personal sins. And therefore, we're beginning to come under the judgment of God. And so part of what Newton was doing was pleading with the people that heard him to repent and believe and to turn from these sins before God brought a greater judgment upon his nation. And so I see that as a a good model for us to to recognize that that we are not to be overcome by 
the sin of, that is around us, but we are to remember that the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed, that while it may look small, as we're about to say now, it will grow to be great, and we are to continue to make known Jesus in the hopes of transforming our culture by bringing people into the kingdom of God from the kingdom of darkness. And so the kingdom of God transforms earthly kingdoms. If you didn't think I had a point, that was my point. I don't know if I made it well, but I'm fuzzy today. I don't know what it is. Secondly, uh, as I think about this parable, I, I wonder why does Jesus explain the kingdom with a mustard seed as opposed to a seed? What, what is it about a mustard seed? That idea of the transformative nature of the kingdom is not necessarily explicit in this parable, but let's look at something that is explicit within this parable. Jesus says that the, the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds on the earth, and for that, Jesus has gotten into trouble with botanists. Jesus is not intended to be taken literally here. and I, I, I hate to sound like the rich man in that silly movie. Okay, But it was a proverbial saying in Jesus' day. And we find that proverbial saying in a lot of the writings that have uh, emerged from that period of time. Uh, okay? It's not scientifically the smallest seed. We know that the orchids are smaller, and we know that begonias have smaller seeds. That really, the size of the seed itself, uh, relative to others, is not really Jesus' point here. Jesus is just saying something in a colloquial way that everyone around him would understand. Really small seed. I think we've got the picture there of, uh, yeah, barely on your fingertip. That's how tiny this particular seed is. But this small, seemingly insignificant little seed becomes larger than all the garden plants. Jesus is contrasting its size as a seed with its size when it is mature and grown and producing lots of seeds. The mustard is a bush. It's a shrub. But it regularly grows to more than 10 feet tall and would look like a tree if you were to look at it. Now, here's where I get to one of those Uh, divergent voices that we hear. In his commentary on uh, this parable, in his, uh, well, his commentary on Matthew, okay, he's looking at it from Matthew. James Boyce, I was surprised to read, and I kind of wonder, I have some theories as to why he might think this, but uh, Boyce takes the abnormal size as part of a series of of, uh, connection points that have to do with the parable of the weeds, which is immediately preceding this in Matthew's account. Uh, the, the presence of the leaven, which immediately follows this in Matthew and Luke's account, as well as the use of birds in the parable of the sower, which was negative, uh, you know, re- reflecting what Satan does. And so uh, Boyce takes all of these things together and talks about how this is actually a negative parable. It's talking about the, the danger that the kingdom is in, indicates that in some way Jesus is warning about the infiltration of sin, that he's worried about the authoritarian structure which will come. I almost feel like 
he's the rich man. <laughs> Wondering, well, having such a divergent view of things. Wanting to know what the name of the Greek man is. Wanting to change things about, that's obviously about the um, all makers of dairy products, not the cheese makers. There's something about what James Boyce, who's usually very reliable, that does not seem to make sense to me. What rather what may, makes sense better, I believe, and what Jesus is communicating here, is that the kingdom begins in an insignificant way. It begins with a rabbi, not a general. Begins with, a, with the wrong kind of guy with the wrong kind of people around him. Even if he's a rabbi, it's not scholars that surround him, it's fishermen and tax collectors. So uh, it's not soldiers. And so it's, it's the wrong guy with the wrong people, this very insignificant thing that begins, but Jesus is telling them is that though it starts insignificant and small, the kingdom of God is going to become huge. It's going to be big in a shocking sort of way. In other words, the size of the beginnings are not significant to God in any way, shape, or form. He reveals His power and He gets His glory by using things that are less honorable, less significant, less impressive. We see that in that passage from 1 Corinthians. God didn't choose the wise. God didn't choose the nobles. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong things of this world. God specifically chooses to use the insignificant in order to reveal that the power is from Him and Him alone. And so God is going to reveal His glory in the growth of this kingdom because it seems to start so insignificantly small. God's been doing this from the beginning. He filled the world with Adam and Eve, two people. He didn't create thousands. We see the same thing when God starts over with Noah and his three sons and their four wives, eight people repopulating the world. We see when God starts spiritually with Abraham and his wife who couldn't have children. God was going to bring a kingdom, a nation of that, and yet he did. Where God sends Moses, who before, yes, he had been the adopted son of Pharaoh, but do you know the last 40 years? Think about that for a moment. How many of you are under 40? Not, only a couple of you. All right. Wow. Okay. Longer than you've been alive, Alex. <laughs> Moses was a shepherd for longer than you've been alive. A shepherd in the wilderness, the middle of nowhere. He's the nowhere man living in his nowhere land. And God says, go, I'm about to set my people free. Moses didn't have an army. It was not going to be a, a, a big battle between Pharaoh 
and a, and a, a force of equal caliber. It's a man. An old man. Yeah, he was 80 at this point. Can you think of anything more insignificant than an old man who's been in the desert all by himself, essentially, except for his wife and his kids, for 40 years, going to the most powerful man on the face of the earth and saying, let my people go. Can you think of anything more stupid? And that's what God does to shame the wise. This is what God does. All the, all the soldiers of Israel were quaking in their boots because of Goliath, and here comes the shepherd boy who's trusting in God. The disciples that Jesus has here, by the time they die, the known earth would have heard the gospel. It was carried already all the way into India to the east. It had already gone up into the Germanic tribes and and things. And it had already gone into Africa, not just through the Ethiopian eunuch, but, but through other people as well. Think about that. It started with these guys in the nowhere land of Palestine, of Canaan. And it covered the Roman Empire. It grows. Intimidated by the size of the task, intimidated by the smallness or the the weakness of the church, I want you to remember the mustard seed. The kingdom from that seed grows to cover the earth. Third sort of question. Why does it matter that the kingdom covers the earth? Uh, Jesus uh, has addressed the ordinary, extraordinary size of this garden plant common to that area. But he notes here that it puts out large branches so the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now, and here's part of why I disagree with James Montgomery Boyce. Um, I don't use all three of my names. Maybe I'm more impressive if I go Stephen Paul Cavallero. But then I think of my mother, and that's what she said when I was in trouble, so I don't want to go there. <laughs> he goes back to the parable of the sower, and he, says, he says, mentions the birds. And in that, that particular parable, the yes, they are used in a negative way because they come and they snatch the seed before it grows. But here, uh, Jesus uses a longer phrase. He does have birds, but he adds the birds of the air. And what we see, if we're paying attention to the Old Testament, is that this language, this phraseology, is used in Ezekiel twice, as well as in Daniel, to refer to earthly kingdoms. First, Assyria, Babylon, and then a renewed Israel. And it's meant to talk about their greatness, not necessarily their evil. The fruits of the devil, okay? We see, for instance... The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole world, and its leaves were bountiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade in it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. That's Daniel 4. We see this incredible kingdom. 
that provides for people and also protects people. In Ezekiel 17, for instance, we read, on the, height, <clears throat> on the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it. Okay, this is about the renewed kingdom, not Babylon. That it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar, and under it it will dwell. Every kind of bird, in the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And so, again, this idea of this, in this case, a cedar, not something as boring as a mustard plant, but the branches are big and it provides shelter and fruit for birds of all kinds. Let's recognize initially that Babylon, Assyria, and Rome, we'll toss Rome in there, okay, were all predatory empires. They expanded not to bring blessing to other nations, but to possess other nations, to bring them under their rule and their thumb. But I want you to recognize that God's kingdom is not predatory. But we do find that just like with those kingdoms, we see that Jesus talks about birds being able to find shelter and protection in their branches. They're able to find rest. They're able to flourish and reproduce. That's what the nest is for, primarily, for reproduction and the nurturing of their young until they're ready to go out into the world. We see, for instance, in Acts chapter 10, that this phrase, birds of the air, is used when Peter has his vision. Remember, uh, Peter is uh, in Joppa, and unknown to Peter, here come the men from Cornelius to ask him to come teach them the gospel. Okay, all you BSF people are probably going, oh, this sounds familiar, right? Okay. Peter sees the sheet come down, and you see all kinds of unclean things on it, including the, the, what, he, what is called birds of the air, or birds of the heavens. And God says, eat. And Peter goes, no. How can I eat that which is unclean? And so three times, God see, uh, Peter sees this vision of this sheet coming down, and three times God says, eat. And finally God says to him, do not call unclean that which I have made clean. Okay. I think in a similar sense, what Jesus is getting at here is the, these birds of the air are unclean, But part of what Jesus is talking about is now they're becoming clean because they're coming under the protection of the kingdom of God. Jesus is cleansing them of their impurity and uncleanness as he brings them in so that they are acceptable to God, that they find rest, and they're able to flourish and grow. Jesus is communicating to the people around him in a way that they probably didn't get because mustard seed? They're probably still going, mustard seed? Yes, mustard seed. Jesus is communicating the influx of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God by his grace that it is too small a thing, as it says in Isaiah, for him simply to save the people of Israel, that God is going to save these Gentiles as well, and they're going to find rest in this kingdom of the Son. 
they're going to find safety. They're going to find peace. They're going to find joy and blessing under the umbrella of Jesus that they did not experience and cannot experience in the earthly kingdoms they live in. We see a glimpse of this in the passage we had in Revelation 5 uh, for our call to worship, that Jesus has bought people. Not, he didn't buy every tribe, tongue, nation, language, but He bought people from every, or redeemed people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, bringing them into His kingdom. Jewish people, Germanic people, Italian people, Polish people, even those Dutch people that we love so much, okay? African people, Asian people, Eskimos, Native Americans, or whatever, wherever they're from, there are some that Jesus has bought with His blood and brings into his kingdom, and they find rest there. In this kingdom, no one shall be rejected due to the color of their skin, to their sex, as a result of their language, or of their social status. That doesn't matter in Jesus' kingdom. But Jesus also communicates, I think, the granting of shelter to the vulnerable. There's a reason why birds build nests in trees. Because they're trying to escape the predators on the ground. They're vulnerable. The kingdom of Jesus is a safe place. As we think about these things and sometimes the weary task of evangelism, I want you to, again, remember the mustard seed. I want you to remember that this tells us that Jesus will prevail and that Jesus will protect. And that's good news for us. Another way of saying that would be that the kingdom provides shelter to many. And so evangelism is really trying to gather people in need of shelter to the shelter that God has provided. That's all evangelism it is. If we were to wrap these ideas up into one big idea, we would see that the kingdom grows to cover and transform the earth to provide shelter for people. So, As we wrap up some parables in Mark's Gospel, we recognize that people have struggled to understand Jesus uh, as we see expressed by blessed are the cheesemakers and blessed is the Greek, the nameless Greek. We need ears to hear and we need eyes to see and Jesus is the only one who can grant those. But as we listen to this parable, we can see that the kingdom is like the growth of a mustard seed. While it's small and seemingly insignificant, it grows into the largest of shrubs and transforms a field and provides shelter for all kinds of birds. The kingdom of God began with only a handful of disciples, but it would soon cover the earth. It would transform nations. It would transform people groups. 
Jesus provides rest and shelter to a wearied, vulnerable people by his kingdom. And when you're tempted to think of the world as a dangerous place, which most of us probably are, I want you to remember the mustard seed. That God's kingdom grows, and God's kingdom provides shelter so that you need not fear. Let's pray. Father, it is a challenge to properly grasp what you're saying to us in these couple of verses. But you're you're meant to convey something that is vital for us. Really a matter of life and death. And we thank you for a kingdom that grows. A kingdom that transforms. A kingdom that offers us shelter. Father, help us to trust in that kingdom. To not trust in chariots horses and tanks and bombs, not to trust in wealth, but, but to find our meaning and significance as being part of this kingdom Jesus talked about, this kingdom that looks weak and insignificant. but isn't. We praise you that in some sense you are the God who hides. The God who brings glory to himself by um, not relying on the strength or wisdom of men. Help us to believe that. That's hard for us to believe. But work by your spirit so that we, we embrace that and begin to live by that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.